0: Morning. we made it 2022 we did it well done everyone how, how are you feeling anybody uh, you're already busy hurried stressed, worried anxious any of those things already uh, if you had to drive on on 35 maybe or dealing with the cedar a little bit well, back in April, a NASA spacecraft touched the sun. It it flew through the atmosphere of the sun for the first time ever, and we're now just now finding out about it. Uh, it took months for the data to get back to us at Earth, um, and you probably don't need any other information to realize the enormity of this feat, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. So, uh first of all, the sun is 93 million miles from the earth. Your family road trip doesn't even come close. The sun itself makes up 99% of the mass of the solar system. So if you think about like the enormity of the earth and then you add to it all of the other planets in the solar system, that that only makes up half of a percent of the entire mass of the solar system. The surface of the sun is 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Interestingly enough, the the atmosphere of the sun, which of all things is called the corona, uh, the atmosphere of the sun is 2 million degrees Fahrenheit. So roughly the temperature of your seatbelt in August. Uh, In other words, the sun is far away the sun is really big and the sun is really hot and so it took months for the data to get back to to researchers here on earth we now have the video the the spacecraft flew into the sun and then took video back at the solar system uh, to you kind of get the sun's perspective of what the solar system looks like and and so we're going to we're going to show you this video here in a second and and we try to point out some of the things to you on, on the video, but, but I, I want to make sure that you notice these things. First of all, you'll see like these, uh, it looks like light beams uh, going by, and that's really what that is. That's part of the magnetic field surrounding the sun that I've just exhausted all of my knowledge uh, on, on what that is. Um, and then you'll see some white dots floating by. Those are planets, and in the video we point those out to you so you can see which planets are which. Uh, and, and then you'll, you'll see what looks like a mountain range. That is, that is the Milky Way galaxy. Um, we are a part of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy has an estimated 200 billion stars in it besides our sun. And our sun is just an average, just an average star in the Milky Way galaxy. So, so watch this video. Now, that's what we look like from the sun's perspective I don't know you maybe have seen pictures and and other images like this this is the first time that we've ever seen the solar system from the sun's perspective but f- from that perspective we are very small uh, you and i we're we're important but we're we're small, and now you and I, as of yesterday, have embarked on another journey around the sun. No one knows what 2022 holds for us. Everyone in this room approaches this new year from a different perspective. Maybe it's anxiety or, or fear or anticipation, maybe maybe relief, maybe motivation, resolve, maybe, maybe hopelessness. But whether you're ready or not. 2022 is upon us. We we have a whole year ahead of us. How, how should we begin? Well, I think a great place to begin is, is Psalm 131, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 131 is where I'd like you to turn. It'll also be on the screen. I'm looking at the English Standard Version here in front of me. Psalm 131 says this, A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Where should we begin our year together? I think we should begin with the first words of this psalm, O Lord, O Lord. In the original language, it's actually the name of God, Yahweh. Oh, oh Lord, we should begin with the maker of heaven and earth. We should begin with the one who knows the end from the beginning. Oh, Lord. So this morning, I invite you to set aside all of the anticipation that you have. Or maybe preoccupation that you have. Fear. Or worry. Maybe lay aside all of the things that that churn in your mind and, and constantly require your attention. Just this morning, for just a second, can we hit the pause button and clear our minds and breathe and turn our attention to the Lord? As we look at this psalm together, what we're going to discover is actually pretty simple. There's only... Three verses in Psalm 131, I dare you to memorize it. It's it's short, but living it out is a different story. As a matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon once noted that Psalm 131 is the shortest psalm to read, but the longest to learn. The message is really simple. The Lord is God. You are not. But you are his child, so trust him. Let's look at this together. In in verse 1, David lists three things that he will not do. Three things that he will not do. Number one, he says, my heart is not lifted up. In the Hebrew mind, the heart is like mission control. What we think about when we think about the heart is emotion. Um, But in the Hebrew mind... The heart is where you make decisions, where you ponder over things. And here David says, my heart is not exalted. My heart is not lifted up. Maybe your translation says, my heart is not haughty or prideful. I do not concern my inner thoughts with things that belong to God. Like in Deuteronomy 29:29, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that God keeps to himself and doesn't share with us. And there's a way in which we, we let our hearts ponder on things that really aren't our concern. You know, that's essentially what worry is. Worry is meditation. Worry is meditating on things that are really outside of your control what might happen or what might those people think or what might those people do or what will the future hold worry is also it's a kind of pride worry is like saying i'm not sure that god is going to handle it so i need to try to take care of it by worrying Now, worry is a kind of pride, and that means that worry is not a quirk. Oh, I'm just a worrier. Worry is is not a quirk. Worry is wicked. Worry is a prideful heart. Worry is a mission control that doesn't trust God. And so that's why Proverbs 16.5 says that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. If worry is pride, pride is an abomination. What's even more twisted about worry is that it's not actually doing anything. What are you actually accomplishing? Jesus says this in the in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? What are you accomplishing by being worried about something? David says here, my my heart is not lifted up. My thoughts are not consumed with things that are outside of my control. If, If you were to write down every single thought you had today, I wonder how many of those thoughts would be about things over which you have zero control. And what are you in control of really anyways? Second. My eyes are not raised too high. That's the second thing David says he will not do. My, my eyes are not raised too high. He has moved from his heart to his eyes. Your eyes are the way that you view the world. And, and David says, my eyes are not raised too high. I don't, I don't view myself as the center of the universe. That's what little kids do, right? They, they view themselves as the center of the universe of the universe. They are more important than anyone else. Their needs, their wants are the most important thing, and that's why they throw temper tantrums. They don't have a category for understanding that maybe their needs aren't the most important needs. They don't have a category for not getting what they want. They have to be trained out of it. But I think, as I, as I think about that, that I, I think that that innate desire to view yourself as the center of the universe never really leaves us as human beings. That little kid throwing a temper tantrum in the aisle of Walmart still has that same worldview 20 to 30 years later. They just have learned that it's not socially acceptable to throw a temper tantrum in the aisle of Walmart. At least most of us have learned that. We we view the, that the we we think that the world was made for us. And we are the center of the universe, and what we want and what we need is the most important thing and more important than anything else. And so we've got our eyes raised, and sometimes our eyes are so raised that we have to look down on other people. See, if we're the center of the universe, then, then we are, are the standard of what's good and right and true and acceptable and wise. And so when somebody else doesn't view the world the same way that we do, we look down on them. We look down on people who maybe don't have it as put together as we do. We don't even think about the people that have it more put together than we do. We, we forget them because we're the standard. You can know that your eyes are raised too high if you think everybody else is stupid. If you think everybody else is in your way, or other people, if they could just get their act together and be more like me. If that's your thought process, then your eyes are raised too high. And Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, addresses this. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eyes? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. With the measure you use judgment, it will be measured to you. So how about a little grace for other people? Jesus' point is not that you should never try to discern between good and evil. That's not the point there. His point is that it's not your job to sit on the judgment seat and pronounce a, a sentence based on what your eyes see. You don't know everything. You don't see everything. Your job, believe it or not, your job is not other people. You have a job already. Your job is yourself. And when you judge other people, you're doing God's job. Other people are, are God's business, not yours. You aren't their judge. You aren't their savior. You aren't their maker. God in his sovereignty has placed them in the circumstances that they find themselves in. They've had the experiences that they have had. They they have the character flaws. They have all the things that shape them. And God's in charge of those things. You can help. You can pray. You can offer wisdom when asked. But it's not your job to fix somebody. It's not your job to save somebody. It's not your job to judge people. I think what David is saying in Psalm 131 is that it matters where your eyes are focused. See, in Psalm 131, he says, my eyes are not raised too high. But in Psalm 121, he says, I lift my eyes up. So which is it? Do I lift my eyes up or look down? What what am I supposed to look? Where am I supposed to look here? It matters where your eyes are focused. In 131, he says, my eyes are are not raised too high. In 121, he says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? I'm not the center of the universe. I can't help myself, much less help that person over there. I need the Lord. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. He made heaven and earth not me. I I look to him for help. So if you're going to raise your eyes, look to the maker of heaven and earth. Consider your attitude towards people. Consider the way you treat others. Especially those who who really offer nothing for you. Consider the way you think about other people or your Eyes raised too high. The third thing that David says he will not do, he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The ESV says this word occupy, the, the original language, actually, it says walk back and forth. I don't. Walk back and forth in things that are too great and too marvelous for me. It's it's a way of saying, like, the way that I spend my time, the way that I spend my days, how I occupy myself, the things I do. So so David, it, you see what he's doing. He's considered his heart. He's considered his eyes. And now it's like he's considering his hands or really probably better his feet. What he does, where he goes. The things I do on a daily basis are not too great. They're not too marvelous. For me, now what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that my my job's not important? Does that mean I don't try at anything? I just kind of ease into everything. What what in the world does that mean? I think what David means here, uh, we might say today, I stay in my lane. I stay in my lane. I recognize I'm not. God. He says too great and too marvelous here. Um, In the Psalms, every time those two words are used together, great and marvelous, sometimes it's translated wondrous or wonderful. Every time those words are used together, they refer to things God does. So listen to this. uh, Psalm 86 verse 10 says, For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalm 136, uh, verse 4. To him alone who does great wonders. Great wonders. His steadfast love endures forever. He alone does great wonders. Not, not you. Verse, uh, Psalm 145, verses 5 and 6. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. See, the things that are great and marvelous, those are things that God does. Not you. Not me. The point is not that you're not important. And the point is not that you shouldn't try to think about the things of God. The point is that you shouldn't try to do things that are God's job. He alone is God. God is in charge of the big stuff. God is in charge of the small stuff. Jesus addresses this again in the Sermon on the Mount. God is in charge of the small stuff. Matthew 6:25 through 32. Listen to this. Do not be anxious about your life. Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God is in charge of the small stuff. He cares. God is also in charge of the big big stuff. See, there's a plan for the world for which God is responsible. We're a part of the story. We aren't the whole story. And we for sure aren't in charge of making sure his plan succeeds. See, this story began before us. It began in the book of Genesis. And there's a man named Abraham. And it proceeds through to King David and his royal line. And then it proceeds to the, to the warnings and the promises of the prophets. And it proceeds through Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection. And then it proceeds to the beginnings of the church. And then generations upon generations upon generations of faithful believers in Jesus. And us. And then the generations that come after us. And after us. And after us. We are a part of God's plan for the world. But his plan will continue on after us. See, God is drawing all of history to the point when the Lord Jesus returns, and he finally establishes his kingdom. And God is in charge of seeing that plan through. So we we look at like the chaos in our world, right? And we, over the last, what, three, four years, or whatever it's been, we we look at the chaos and all of the things that, that's happened on a global level and locally in our community and all of these things that are taking place, and we're upset. Like Some of us, we're upset or we're frustrated or we're anxious. We're worried, and all these things are taking place, but we have to put that in perspective. See, God is in charge of the big stuff. Nothing is going to change his plan. He's pulling it through the direction that he wants it to go, and our hope and our trust is in him. See, there are things in this world that are not your job. Believe it or not. You are small. Now, you're important. You're important to your family. You're important to your friends. You're important in this community. You're important to this church. You, you need this church, and we need you. You're, you're important here. But you're small. The Lord is God, and you are not. Maybe Maybe you need to hear it as plain as day. You're not God. So David lists those three things that he won't do. And in verse 2, he lists one thing that he will do. If, if the theme of verse 1 is pride, we would think if there's going to be a contrast coming, then, then it should be humility, right? It should, that should be the next thing. But that's not what, really what he says at all. Look, look with me uh, in verse 2 of 131, Psalm 131. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. He doesn't necessarily contrast pride and humility. He says that the opposite of pride is calm and quiet. He says my soul is calm. Literally, he says my throat is calm. That's not as as beautiful of an image, is it? Uh, My throat is calm. That's a way of, of speaking of the whole self. In other words, my heart and my eyes and my hands and my feet. All, every, everything that makes me a person, my soul, my whole being is calm. The word calm means to smooth or to make even. It's the, the image of, a, uh, of like a farmer and he wants to plant some seeds. He wants to sow some seeds. But before he can do that, he's got to smooth the ground out. He's got to make the uneven ground nice and smooth. Or, or maybe the image is like uh, you wake up in the morning, you woke up late. And you jump out of bed and you didn't make your bed. And then when you come back later that day and you want to you go to sleep, but your covers are all messed up on the bed. You want to get a good night's sleep, you, you, you smooth out the covers first. And then you can rest. He's calm and he's quiet. Quiet is just another way of saying calm. When you're calm, you're quiet. And he illustrates this. With a simile, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child with its its mother. When when a baby is brand new, a newborn, the, the baby wants his mother. And the main reason why is because the baby knows that the mother provides food. Have you ever seen a hungry newborn? Would you describe the demeanor of that hungry newborn as quiet and calm? No, (laughs) unsettled, squirmy, frustrated, anxious, fretful, loud, angry, full of rage. That's a newborn with his mother. That's not the image that David uses in Psalm 131, though that is a sweet image. He says like a weaned child. With his mother. Uh, a weaned child doesn't need his mother to eat necessarily anymore. He knows that food will be provided, and that food can come separate from mom. He knows that his needs are taken care of. So then why does, why does a, a weaned child want his mother? A weaned child wants his mother simply because he wants to be with her. That's the picture of of contentment david is able to be calm and quiet he can calm and quiet his soul because he has satisfied his soul in god alone all of his other needs are accounted for he knows that that his heavenly father will take care of his needs since the lord is his shepherd he shall not want he needs nothing else the the only thing that he really needs is, is to be with God and and when he's with God when he's in God's presence he's content because he doesn't need anything else and so David says my soul is calm and quiet like a weaned child with its mother can i tell you that that's not something that just happens to you so many of us are anxious and fretful and we're we're like, well, when am I going to be calm and quiet? When is that day going to come for me? It's not something that happens to you. And and I want to show you, David knows that too. Because in, in verse 2, he, he doesn't say, that it's a little stronger than, than what it says. It says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Actually, what he says is, if I don't calm and quiet my soul, and he kind of leaves it like that, like an incomplete sentence. Now, what that is, he's making an oath. And and maybe you don't understand. so. Uh, let me relate it to you You probably have said something like this before boy if you don't stop picking on your sister everybody knows the way that ends right i don't need to say the rest of it i'm making an oath that's what that's what david has done he says if i don't calm and quiet my soul i'm going to make a conscious decision to calm and quiet my soul maybe some people are naturally calm and quiet Maybe some people uh, don't naturally fret and worry, but David says, that's not me. I, I have to make a conscious decision to calm and quiet my soul. I'm not going to be proud. I'm not going to look down on other people. I'm not going to concern myself with things that are none of my business. What am I going to do instead? I'm going to calm and quiet my soul. Would you describe your soul as calm and quiet? Or would you describe your soul as hurried? Or distracted, or fretful, or anxious, pathologically busy? Why are you in such a hurry? Why are you so busy? David says in Psalm 131, remember that the Lord is God. I am not, but I am his child. And so we'll see in verse 3, I can trust him. In verse 3, David says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Three things David will not do, one thing he will do. And he says, join me in my contentment. O Israel, let's read that, O people of God. If you would consider yourself a part of the people of God, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. We use this word hope with a measure of uncertainty. Like we'll say things like, I hope when I leave here, I don't get stuck at this light at Lake Creek in six twenty for thirty minutes, <laughs> right? I'm not frustrated about that uh, you say i I hope like um uh we were we were in Buda in Buda yesterday and and when you're getting ready to go from from Buta to Round Rock, you pull out your phone and you look at your map app, and you're like, okay, there's three ways to go. you can go mopac. Around You can go 35 straight up or you can go way around on 130. And you look at the times and you pick the shortest one or maybe they're close. You pick the cheapest one. But if you pick 35, you're like, I hope nothing changes in the next five minutes. Because it might. It might say 45 minutes and an hour and a half later, I'm still downtown. I hope, but I don't really know. But that's not the way that the Bible uses the word hope. See, the way that the Bible uses the word hope, it's it's warranted expectation. I know, I expect that something is going to happen, and I have a good reason for thinking that. Like, God has said it, he has proved himself faithful in the past, and so I know, I have warranted expectation that it's going to take place in the future. That's what hope is. As a matter of fact, that word hope in Psalm 131 could also easily be translated, wait. Wait for the Lord. Wait for him. When my daughter Clara was very little, she used to be upset when we would take her to the nursery here at church. She didn't want to be away from her parents. And so she would cry. And uh, we have a, we have a picture of this with one of our fantastic nursery workers. Uh, That picture was sent to me. This was maybe three years ago or something. And it said, look, mama, I'm not crying at a, at a Sunday school today. She's not crying there. Um, But, uh, she, she didn't want to be away. And so one time, uh, after we picked her up from from Sunday school, I, I asked her, Clara, what, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And that little girl told me, that mama be back. <laughs> so you understand what's happening there. She's upset, and the nursery workers are saying, it's okay, mama will be back. Well, she doesn't cry in the nursery anymore. Because she's learned over time. She said she'll be back. And up to this point, she's always been back. And so now I believe that every single time, she'll come back and get me. See, she has hope. She waits for her mom to come get her because she knows that she will. She's seen it in the past, and she knows that it'll happen in the future. That's the same with God. He has been faithful. We have pages and pages of God being faithful. We have our lives. We have other generations of people proclaiming to us that God has been faithful. And so we know he'll be faithful to us in the future. It might not be how you think he should be faithful. It might not be when you think he should be faithful, but he will be faithful. You know, the people of God were were scattered all over the world by the Babylonians. They were in exile. And those are the people that would have Read this psalm of David. There are many who would say that that these psalms of ascent, you know, that we, we said a song of ascent. Uh, it would have been the people going up to Jerusalem to worship. And that's true. But it was also read by people who were in exile and wanted to go back to Jerusalem to go back home. They were not living at home. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem. They knew God's promise that they would return. But they also knew that they had to wait. And so they waited in exile. And it was it was probably very difficult as they waited years upon years and decades upon decades. They waited and they waited. And there's this temptation that God doesn't seem like he's coming through. So I'm going to doubt God's promises. But they knew God's word. And they knew that they could wait with warranted expectation. Where are you waiting on God? Where do you need God to come through? Do you believe that he's faithful? Do you believe that he's going to come through in his time and in his way? The Lord is never late, nor is he early. He always arrives precisely when he means to. See, our hope is not based on what our hearts understand, nor what our eyes can see, nor what our hands can get done or where our feet can go. Our hope is based on the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. He will see to it that his promises are fulfilled to us. So it is with this hope that we wait for him. Well, the question that many of you may be asking is, how long then? How, how long do I wait? The psalm tells us, from this time forth and forevermore. Literally, from now until forever be prepared to wait forever. See the point of Psalm 131 is not to give us a timetable. It's not to tell us how long that we're going to have to wait for God to come through, but but rather the proper the proper posture of trust while we wait. So here's the deal. You and I we're we're like the people of God living in Babylon. You and I, we are in spiritual exile. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. There is a, another city to which we belong. We live in a society that doesn't share our values. They, they don't share our priorities. Our society doesn't think the same as us. We are outsiders to them. We, we are crazy. We are Foolish there are things that are important to us that are not important to them And and there are things that are important to them that are not important to us And so it should not shock us when we go through difficult times It should not shock us when people don't treat us the way we would like to be treated We shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't even be upset about it. We should expect it to take place Because we're exiles This is not our home we're the people of God living in Babylon, but God has promised that He's going to come get us. But one day we we're going to go home. It's not going to be like this forever. We just got to wait a little while. And what is our posture while we wait? Well, it's Psalm 131. The Lord is God. We are not. But we are his child, so we can trust him. So what is your heart meditating on today? What are your worries? What are your concerns? And should you be worried about those things? Are the things that, that cause your soul anxiety, are those things your business? And where are your eyes focused today? Are they raised too high? Are you looking down on other people? Are you trying to save somebody? You're trying to fix somebody? You're trying to judge someone? And are those things your job? And what are your hands occupied with today? Are you trying to do God's job for Him? Maybe, maybe we need to kick off the year by making a conscious decision to rest in God. To rest in God. Why are you in such a hurry? Why are you so busy? Rest in God. God's got it. Remember I told you at the beginning. That thing in your head. That thing churning that won't ever go away. That you always come back to. And I told you to put it away and it's already come back. That thing. God's got it. He's got it. He's in charge. He's in control. And the best news is that he loves you. And that he's faithful to keep his promises. God's going to work it out. He might still be working on it, but someday, somehow, some way, it's going to be all right. So we can hope in the Lord now until forever. The Lord is God. You are not, but you are his child, so you can trust him. Why don't we pray?